Good afternoon and welcome to today's uh, lunch break and today's class as we look a little into the future as that's what we're going to talk about today. What does the future hold for us? 500 years ago there was an English writer by the name of Thomas Morris who wrote a book by the name Utopia and where he talks about a sailor who goes, a Greek sailor who goes around the world and trying to find and discover different things and events that happen. Yeah, good idea. No. Different events and different places around the world. And he talks about one of the islands that he came to, a very hidden island, and at the island where barely any people knew about the island, and the island's name was Utopia. And life on the island was pleasant. It was unbelievable. Everybody there just got along. Everything that was on the island belonged to everybody. Everybody was able to enjoy everything. Everybody got along. The people only work six hours a day. The rest of the day, they just sit and relax on vacation. There were barely any rules or laws to govern. There was no enforcement. It was unbelievable. The people were just respecting each other and kind to each other. There was no such thing as even a lawyer existent on the island to be able to defend People were just naturally kind, good, beautiful, caring with one another. But within the book, there's one little catch. And he says, what does the word utopia mean? Generally, most people think the word utopia means the ultimate. But in fact, the word utopia comes from a word in Greek, which means there is no such place, no such land. The word utopia, the Greek translation of the word utopia is no such thing or no such place. And what is that telling us? The absolute of absolute good. There is no such place. No such place exists in the world. To contrast that, or if we say in Hebrew it's lahavdil, if we want to look in Judaism, what do we call the utopia, the ultimate, the perfection of the world? Is the time of the coming of Mashiach. It's the time that the promise that our prophets tell us that the world will come to this utopia, to this ultimate good perfection, where everybody would get along with one another, where everybody will live perfect lives, there won't be any illness, there won't be any fights, there won't be any wars, they'll be taking swords and making it into plowshares. The entire world will be a life of bliss and absolute thirst for the knowledge of God. Now while this sounds like an unbelievable vision, this sounds like an unbelievable thing, is it utopia? Which translation are you going to take of it? But where does this first come about clearly in the Torah? Is in this week's Torah reading. This week's Torah reading begins with the words, Moshe tells the Jewish people, Im If you will go on my statutes, tishmeru, and you will follow my commandments. The word im means that God is pleading with us, please follow the commandments, do what you're told. Why? Because then he continues to say what the promises are, what the blessings are. And I will take away any animal from wild animal from the earth. 
people would get along, you'll have all the blessings. And what does it mean? The Yishpati Chayirah, I will take away wild animals. The Talmud, the Medrash explains, Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai says, the animals will no longer be destructive. That means, as it says in the prophecy of Isaiah, and is enshrined in the wall of the United Nations, and a wolf will lie with the lamb. Not only will the wolf lie with the lamb, but even a lion, instead of attacking other animals to eat and to survive, is going to eat straw, just like a sheep. A lion will be like the cattle in the wing straw. Now, the prophecy Isaiah is talking about a world which would be called utopia. A world which is unimaginable. A world which there would be no worries. No, even the animals will get along with one another. Even animals won't destroy one another. What does this mean? That the nature of the creatures are going to change? And it seems like it. Because not only will it happen in the animal kingdom, but it will also happen with vegetation, as it says in this week's Torah reading. Part of the blessings that it continues in this week's Torah reading, in chapter 26, verse 4 in the book of Leviticus, it says, The ground will give produce. The eighth hasada, the wood of the field, yit imperial will give fruit. Rashi explains and says, what does it mean the wood of the field will give fruit? That even non-fruit bearing trees will also bear fruit in the time of the coming of Moshiach. So we see that this utopia, this ultimate reality of absolute perfection and bliss is going to not only change mankind, not only change the animal kingdom, but also change vegetation, that vegetation themselves, that those trees that have not been given fruit until now will be giving fruit as well. So all your cactuses, all your other regular trees are just going to be able to be, are going to be, able to be fruit trees as well. And as we see, this is something, as I mentioned, that the world looks at the utopia of reality as it's enshrined on the worlds of the, uh, on the walls of the United Nations. As Isaiah says, it will be in the end of days and it will be the house of God and nations will come and all say, let us go up to the house of God and they will, soar, and they will beat their swords into plowshares and, their, um, and, their, and no nation will hold a war against another and nobody will teach war with each other. Now any person reading this asks himself the question and says, is this true? Is this realistic? Can this actually happen? Was the Torah just being a metaphor? Was the Torah really saying this in reality? Is it possible if you look around the world today, are we able to say that this is what it means, a complete world? Is it possible that the world can even reach to such a reality? Is it even possible that such a thing can even happen? And even more so the question is, even let's say it could happen, why would it happen? Why does the world have to change so much? Why does it have to come to that? Why does it have to be that lions won't will start eating straw or that fruit trees will be even from regular bearing trees? What's wrong with the trees the way they are now? The Maimonides, in his letter called the Geras Tria Samesim, where he talks about the resurrection of the dead, Maimonides says that many of the things that the prophet said are just metaphors and examples to what the world would be. And he says as follows. Maimonides explains that all these prophecies that Isaiah says, whether the wolf will lie with the lamb and all these different things, they are only as an introduction to what Isaiah says later on, that will be a world where nobody harms and hurts each other. It will be a world where everybody's knowledge will only be to know the knowledge of God. Therefore, everybody will get along. 
So the concept of saying the wolf will lie with the lamb doesn't mean literally that the wolf will lie with the lamb. It doesn't mean literally that the lion will eat a straw, but it will be such a way of peace that will affect even the animal kingdom. Now, why does Maimonides say that? Because Maimonides says, do you think that a lion destroys its prey or eats, its, uh, eats the other animals because it wants to, because so to speak it hasn't, and it has some type of enemy within the other animal? Yeah. No, God created that the nature of the lion is that in order for it to survive, it destroys the thing that's beneath it. So it's not because the lion has something against the zebra that it destroys it. It's because that's the way God created, the nature of the lion. So why do you think the nature will change? And therefore, Maimonides is of the opinion that even in the time of the coming of Moshiach, it's all a metaphor. It's just that the, everything is going to get along and all the world is going to be at peace and in harmony. And therefore, it's going to affect the animal kingdom as well, but it's not going to change the nature of the world. And therefore, Maimonides explains that the lion is not all of a sudden going to be a lamb. The lion is not all of a sudden going to be a goat. And therefore, there is going to be, yes, the world is going to come to a level of peace and tranquility to a certain extent. However, it's still going to be within the realms of the normality of the world. There's generally, there's many different discussions about this, where we talk about the level of what it means, the coming of Moshiach and awaiting this coming of Moshiach. Many people say, yes, we pray for it. We say it's three times a day, just in the Amidah itself. Every single prayer that the Jewish people talk about is about the coming of Mashiach. But many times, I'm sure, while the heart and wants and desires Mashiach, many people say from an intellectual standpoint, is this really going to happen? They used to say about the Nechelm, uh, you know, Chelm was that special city where they had very intelligent people. And one of the people that they hired was, his job was to stand on the rooftop of the synagogue, and he was going to look out to see if Mashiach was coming. That was his job. So they asked him, how's your job going? He says, the job's a very good job, but I have definite, uh, what do you call it? Job, you know, that he knows that his job is going to be there for a while. Job security, he has definitely. He has good job security. But what is it? Whenever you tell a person Mashiach is going to come, you know, or they say the other story got about the guy in the shtetl was listening to the speech that the rabbi gave in the shul. And the rabbi's talking about the coming of Moshiach. So he runs home to his wife and he tells his wife, you know what I heard today? The rabbi say that Moshiach is going to come. We're going to move to Israel. And we're going to have to give up the bakery. We're going to have to give up our peddler deals. His wife looks at him and says, Yankel, what are you so worried about? We survived the Cossacks. We survived everything. We'll survive Moshiach too. While the heart desires Moshiach, the head sometimes asks, what is this? What are we really waiting for? What are we praying for? What are we asking for? And the question is, is the Mashiach that we're waiting for and hoping for, is he going to come? Is that what's going to happen? Or is in the famous words of the Kutzker, there's once this person was saying and praying for Mashiach, and he told him the Mashiach that you're praying for is not going to come type of thing. What is it? What is the Mashiach that we should be praying for? What does it mean, the Mashiach? And are these things really going to happen? So if we look in this week's Torah reading, we look back, and what is this week's Torah reading best known for? What's the majority of the Torah reading known for? The curses, or as we like to call it, the consequences. It mentions in here a list of blessings and the opposite of blessings, that if God forbid the Jewish people don't follow what God says, then these consequences will come upon them. We read it twice a year, once before Shavuos, 
and once before Rosh Hashanah, in the Torah reading of Pechukotai, and then in the Torah reading of Kisava, which is in the book of Deuteronomy, these numbers, these are consequences that happen to the Jewish people. If you look in this week's Torah reading, you will notice that the blessings, there's only 11 of them. How many curses or how many consequences are there? 29. So if a person looks at this at first glance, it sounds like that there's more punishments around than good things around. If you look a little deeper into it, and this is something which you got to analyze, what is the first word of this week's Torah reading? Im bechukotai telechu. What's the first letter of the word im is an aleph. The entire blessings that are mentioned, even though there are only 11 blessings, start with the letter aleph and end with the letter tough which is, and I will bring you immediately to the land of Israel. What is that telling us? In Hebrew, if you want to say, I got you covered from A to Z, I got you covered from Aleph to Tav, that God is giving us blessings from Aleph to Tav. If you look at the curses, it starts from the letter Vav, and ends with the letter Hey. Anyone familiar with the alphabet knows that He and Vav are letters right next to each other. The Medrash explains something very fascinating. That when Moshe was giving the Jewish people the blessings, he said, listen here. I'm, it looks like only 11 blessings. But what I'm giving you in essence is, I'm giving you every single blessing from Aleph to Tav, from A to Z. But when I'm giving you the curses, the consequences, they're Vav to He. Just like there's no separation between the letters Vav and Hey, they're right next to each other, so too, these are the consequences, nothing more. You're not going to have anything more than this. You're not going to suffer any more than that. That means if you don't follow the commandments, you know that this is going to happen, but nothing more. Even more so if you look into different blessings and curses the way they're mentioned. The 11 blessings, the 11 verses are 11 blessings, one after the other. Here's a blessing, here's another blessing, here's another blessing, and so on and so forth. When it comes to the curses, on the other hand, it says one of the curses, and then God goes again. And if you don't listen to me, then this is going to happen. And then that's another curse. Then it says, and if you don't listen to me again, then they're going to happen again. And between every single one of those consequences, there's, so to speak, a step down. There's a curse, and then a warning. A curse, and then a warning. The Medrash explains and says... That when God gives us a blessing, it is because when it comes to a blessing, there's no measuring. Give. A person that gives, gives with a good eye. The blessings come as much as and as possible. But when it comes to a curse, when it comes to a consequence, not even a curse, but even if this is a punishment, a penalization that a person deserves, it has to be measured. But even taking it a step further, the Talmud explains that always one should it says, Yemin mekareves, bring close with your right hand, usmoil doicha, and push away with your left. What does that mean? That when you're disciplining, whether it's a discipline to a child, discipline to a student, or in general, the person's behavior should always be, bring close with the right hand, and push away with the left. What does that mean? That when a person brings somebody close, what does the right symbolize? The right symbolizes chesed, generosity. Whenever you're being nice to a person, it never hurts to be over nice. Always be extra generous when you want to bring a person close to you. Use the right hand. But before you dismiss somebody, before you push somebody away, even if you're rebuking them because of their good, or even if you're disciplining them or penalizing them because of their own good, whether it's your child, your student, whatever it may be, 
Make sure it's measured, make sure it's small. What does small left symbolize? Gvura, strength, discipline. That means it should be a measured amount. Calculate, always see, am I doing too much? Maybe it's too, maybe it's too much, maybe do less. Always do the most minimal amount, and then if you need to add, you'll add. But start with the most minimal amount. On the other hand, when you're educating and you're doing something and you want to bring somebody close, give extra love. Nobody got hurt from extra love, from extra kindness. But people did get hurt, and any person can get hurt from extra discipline, from extra strength, from extra punishment. And therefore, one must be extra careful, the Torah tells us. And we learn this from how Moshe even tells, or how God tells us about the curses and the blessings, about the penalizations in this week's Torah reading. That when it comes to the blessings, God doesn't make an interruption. I'll have the tough, I give you everything. And when it came to the consequences for what the Jewish people may be doing wrong, each one was measured, each one was calculated, each one was specific. Started first with one, minimally. Okay, and if they don't listen, then we'll do another one. And if they don't listen, another one. But the most minimal amount. Because when it comes to education, and it comes to any type of discipline, or any time we want to be able to talk to somebody and cultivate a relationship, we always have to use extra love and always be strict, so to speak, on ourselves or be disciplined and minimize how much we're going to be in the discipline. There's a very famous, interesting uh, metaphor that they talk about the sun and the clouds once had a debate with one another who has a bigger effect on the human being. And the clouds, the wind, the cloud, the wind said, I have a bigger effect on the human being, watch. And there was this guy walking down the street and all of a sudden the wind started blowing. It's getting cold. He puts on a jacket, he puts on a hat, he puts on a sweater. And he's getting freezing cold and the more colder he's getting from all the wind, he's getting dressed more and more and more. So you see, the cloud winds turn to the sun. Look what I did to this guy. The sun says, okay, you just watch. All of a sudden the sun comes out, it's boiling hot. He's taking off the jacket, he's taking off the sweater, he's taking off a shirt until he's almost naked. So the sun says, looks to this wind and says, look at the difference between me and you. You got the person to only think about himself, put on more jackets, more... So I got the person to more expose about himself, to more show about himself, to more reveal himself to others. We always have to remember, showing more heart, being more expressive, being feeling for another person is what's going to help, is what's going to endear that individual and will never hurt them. Going back to what we're talking about, when we talk about in this week's Torah reading, so we talk about the Torah reading of Parshas Bechukosai, so many times people want to say it's the portion of the consequences. But what does it really have? It's the portion of the blessings at the blessings that are given. So what are these blessings? So the blessings that we find, most of them, refer to the time of the coming of Mashiach, which is the ultimate blessing that is going to happen to the Jewish people, which those blessings talk about an absolute world transformation. A world transformation from the human to the animal to the vegetation, as we mentioned, that the animal be making, that the animal all of a sudden will be like a cattle, or that the vegetation, that the regular trees are going to give fruit, regardless of what it is. And the question that we're back is, even though, yes, we explained Maimonides said they're all metaphor speaking, but what does the Torah actually reality mean when it tells us about these transformations happening? So if one, any Talmudist or any person studying the Talmud will recognize that in the Talmud there are many different episodes and stories which talk about dramatic experiences which are almost impossible to believe. One of these people that speak about these dramatic experiences, and probably he is well known for his dramatic experiences, was a fellow by the name of Rabbi Bar Barchana. 
Rabbi Barbarchana, whenever there's a certain debate in the Talmud, he comes up and he has some type of experience or story or episode or travel that he has experienced that he saw. Just to give you one example that he talks about, he tells a story that once he was traveling with a bunch of sailors in a boat and they saw a little island in the middle of the, in the, middle of the sea with grass and trees growing on it and they decided that they're going to have a little barbecue, you know, to take a little rest. So they come on there and they start making a fire and to be able to cook their food. And as the fire is getting hotter and hotter, all of a sudden they feel that the island starts to shake. And they realize that this island almost, if not for their boat being right on the side, that they ran quickly into their boat, this island, what they imagined was an island, was actually a very large fish or a mammal, whatever you want to call it. And he has some other weird or stories as well. Stories of once he was walking in the de desert and one of the uh, Arab people in the desert said, do you want me to show you the place where all the millions of people that died in the desert are? And he showed him where they are and he saw how tall they are and so on and so forth. And there's many different debates about these stories. Are they real or were they metaphors to be able to bring out a point in the Talmud? Maimonides, as he's mentioned before, when it came to the prophecies of Isaiah, also clears and says that many times the rabbis have chosen dramatic stories and sometimes stories which are very unbelievable to be able to bring across a point and teach us about a certain subject, but they are not necessarily reality. And therefore, the difference, and therefore Maimonides explains and says that there are many different things that we can learn from these stories. And he brings sometimes the actual lessons that we learn from them, but not necessarily in their um, to their exact literal translation and not necessarily did the stories happen literally. The same idea, Maimonides takes the approach when, a time to come, when it comes to the time of the coming of Moshiach. And he says, if you take all the different reality, all the different prophecies that talk about the time of the coming of Moshiach, he says, everything is going to stay the same, basically. The only thing that's going to change is that we're going to have the Holy Temple we're going to be able to move to the land of Israel and the Jewish sovereignty is going to be on the world. But other than that, the natural way of existence that we're going to born, we're die, there's trees, there's animals, will all be the same. What does he say? And Maimonides explains it this way. And Maimonides says, all these prophecies, we can even see a similar example of it today. That means even in the era, in the time, the coming of before Mashiach, you will see within that the world transform in that nature. For example, what's the first prophecy that we always talk about? Willful lie with the Lamb. There will not be war in the world. If you compare today to 500 years ago, even to 200 years ago, there are less wars in the world today with all the craziness that's happening than ever before. Just the allergies. Than ever before. I'm fine. Yeah. Than ever before in the world. There's... You look in the world today, there's less war going on than ever before. So if you want to talk about war, you want to talk about reality, you want to talk about nations getting along with one another, the very fact that you have extreme superpowers in the world, whether they are in bliss with each other, but the reality is there were more people being killed on a regular day 500 years ago, 200 years ago, 100 years ago than there is today with all the crime that's going on. Another thing we find... Maimonides talks about, he says, that when we talk about the level of 
resurrection of the dead, to the extent or the concept that one animal won't have, or people won't have to kill each other for food. Used to be. One of the biggest wars were about sustenance, food. Why do animals kill each other? Because they need to eat. So Maimonides says this is also a parable. It used to be that the wars were all about who can govern so they can have the ownership of the process of the food. Today, many years ago, there was a problem they below, below, before the Industrial Revolution. There were all these predictions how the world is going to go into absolute poverty. Today, according to the United Nations World Health, I think it's UNESCO, they say, world poverty is on its lowest that it ever was in history. So again, we see that people today, in the greatest of times, are able to survive. So the concept, again, that parable of fighting for food doesn't exist today. Similarly, when we talk about the concept of the trees giving fruit, again, Maimonides says that's also a metaphor. It will come a time where the natural resources of the world will be of sustenance. And for example, today, we, don't have, we have the biggest proof for that. We have so many natural resources, gas, oil, electricity, water, all the things that we have today, which power our electronics, all come from natural resources, which they had many years ago, but just didn't know how to utilize it. And we today can mine in the ground to get diamonds, metal, iron, all the things, but in the greatest greatest manifestable way. Not only that, even more so, the concept that today we have tools and mechanisms, machinery, to be able to achieve things that were never able to be achieved years ago. And this is all part of the prophecy of the developing world coming towards the coming of Moshiach, utilizing everything in God's creation for a godly purpose. Maimonides goes a step further. And Maimonides says, there's no difference between this physical world that we're in to the time of the coming of Moshiach, other than the fact of Jewish sovereignty, and therefore, he says, in the time of the coming of Moshiach, there will be wealthy people, there will be poor people, there will be strong people, there will be weak people. But it will be easier for the human being to live in this world, regardless of what level on the plateau they're on, what level of the ladder they're on. And the bottom line is, we see this today, that there are people that are on all different stages and all different levels, and everybody is able to get along, and everybody is able to live. And for the most part of it, if you're in a normal country, even in not in regular countries, Regardless of how much you earn or how great you are or how powerful you are, a person can have a very decent life. So what we can see over here is, technically speaking, all these prophecies, according to Maimonides, are already starting to develop now. And what's going to happen in the time of the coming of Mashiach will just be accelerated. So instead of having all the nonsense on the television, you click with a button, you'll be able to get this class, and click with a button, get that class, and you can get today already. With one click, Today, every person can be a scholar. With one click, they can get anything they want, any section, any subject, any class, any issue, they can study Torah 24 hours a day, live. Never before did you have that in history. Never before in history was the Torah accessible to every single person as it is today. Today, regardless of who you are, where you are in the world, your age, your income level doesn't make a difference, Every single person today has access to study Torah. On their level, on the highest level or on the smallest level. Never before in history has it happened. This is one of the prophecies of the coming of Mashiach, according to Maimonides. The entire world has the accessibility of the knowledge of God. When else did he have it? So seemingly, 
We answered all our questions. Here we got the prophecy of the coming of Mashiach. But there's one little problem. The problem is that Maimonides himself, who made the 13 cardinal beliefs, 13 principles of faith. And the 13th principle of faith is, I believe with absolute faith in the resurrection of the dead. And the problem with that is that if you say that you believe in the resurrection of the dead, the last I checked, the resurrection is not a natural occurrence. It's not something which is part of world change, of world transition. The world the way we know it today is a person lives and a person dies and not that they come back to life. So if Maimonides says that everything is in the normal and nothing's going to change from its natural habitat, why then and how then can I believe in the resurrection? So it must be that even according to Maimonides, there is going to be some type of change in the world that is going to be a resurrection. And therefore we must say that even according to Maimonides, there is going to be a clear difference in the way the world operates from a natural habitat, in humanity, in vegetation, in, 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 in the actual uh, animal kingdom as well. And therefore, we must say that according to Maimonides, there are two stages in the coming of Mashiach. The first stage, no great fantastic miracles are going to happen. Just regular things which are dependent on Mashiach. Which means part of the qualifications of Mashiach is that he has to build the Holy Temple. He has to gather all the Jews and bring them to the land of Israel. All that, yes, it's miraculous. But that's part of what Mashiach is. And that's going to happen. But within the natural events of the world, it'll still be all the same. There won't be any resurrection yet. There'll be natural fruit. The wolf will, the lion will still have to kill its prey to be able to survive, and so on. In the second stage of the coming of Moshiach, then when it's going to be revealed the absolute godliness into this world, where the world will reach its utopiate absolute height of spirituality, through our work in the first stage of the coming of Moshiach, then at that level there will be the resurrection. At that level the world is going to change from its natural habitat, and become an absolute world of spirituality, where then there will be the utopia, where we'll have no more illness, no more sickness, no more worries, no, and no more uh, fight, no more deceit, no more uh, wars, and so on and so forth. And that's only in the second era of the coming of Mashiach, where death will be swallowed into the ground for eternity, there won't be any sickness, and so on and so forth. So what we have over here, we've now jived the two opinions. We have the opinion of what it may be the metaphors, or the opinion of what it may be absolute literalism. So the metaphor, so to speak, applies to the first era. And the first era is going to be in the time of the coming of Mashiach, which is only the building of the base of English and the Jewish people being gathered in the land of Israel, where then the world will still operate on a natural level. In the second era, then we're going to have already not only the building of the Beis Hamikdash, but also then all the different prophecies will occur also in its literal level. Now that we figured it all out, and now that we know how it's all going to work out, and according to all the opinions, there is going to be a dramatic change in the world. And according to all the opinions, whether you want to say it's in the first era, in the second era, in second era, there's going to be a time where the world is going to come to an absolute level of spirituality, where the natural things that we know of today are not going to be the same. And the question is, back to our first question, why does it have to happen? What's the purpose of it? What's the reason why the world has to go back or why the world has to go 
and come to this absolute spirituality. Not only that, if that's the way that it's supposed to be, why didn't God do it initially? So there's a story told that it was on a Friday afternoon, the Noyam Ali Melech, who was known as Rabbi Melech of Dijensk, was sitting in his room studying Torah. And while he was sitting in his room and studying Torah, a Jew comes into his room and starts yelling to the rabbi and says, Rabbi, I want to take God to court. He says, what do you mean I want to take God to court? All of a sudden he realized what he said and got embarrassed and ran out of the room. Rabbi Melech of Lijensk, who was a student of the Magad of Mizrich, called him back and he said, come back, come back. And he says, tell me what's going on. And the Jew tells him as follows. Let me just close the door. And the Jew comes to him and he tells him and he says, I'll tell you what happened. He says, I'm a poor person. I have a family. My daughter came of age to marry. And I can't afford to marry her off because those days especially you needed... Uh, a certain amount of dowry and I wasn't able to afford it and therefore what can I do? But Baruch Hashem, after all the suffering I was able to find a chosen, a groom for my, son, my daughter. But what happened? The czar just came out with a, the, with a decree and he said any person that gets married has to give a huge amount of tax. And I can't afford the tax. And therefore I'm taking God to court, uh, to rabbinical court, because God told us that we should have children. And God told us that we have to marry them off. And now he's not allowing me to do it. This is something which is absolutely not in my hands. It's God preventing me from doing what he told us to do. And I want to take out the court. Rabbi Melech of Lijensk took this very seriously. He called in another two rabbis. And he told the fellow, say your case. They both said, you are right. God has no right to do this. And so on. And you won the court case. He goes home. As he's about to walk into his house, like his wife comes running out with him and says, Did you hear the great news? The Tsar dropped the decree. What happened here? What's going on? If we look at all the promises that we talk about, that the Torah tells us that's what's going to happen when the world is going to be absolute bliss. What is it telling us here? Who made the world? God created the world. God created a world of beauty, a world of bliss, a world of happiness, a world of life. God is the ultimate good. And the very fact that we find in the world something which is the opposite of good, the very fact that in the world there's sadness, there's despair, there's crying, there's evil, there's terrible things that are happening, that's the question. It's like when a person says, you know, you buy a used car from some guy on the road and he gives it to you for $100, you get the car, you expect that there's going to be problems and you're going to have to be by the mechanic every day. But if you're going to a luxury shop and you're buying a Rolls Royce and you're paying $250,000, $500,000 for the car, you should not be in the mechanic every day. God created the world. God is the ultimate perfection. God is the ultimate good. How is it that such a great God should be able to make a world that's so decrepit? What, where do we go wrong here? 
the ultimate God, who made a world of absolute good, all of a sudden, we have a world where there's sickness, a world where there's death, a world where there's fighting, a world where there's war, a world where people don't get along. What happened? And this the Alter Rebbe brings in Tanya. The Alter Rebbe says in Tanya, he says the times of the coming of Mashiach, especially in the times of the resurrection, are the ultimate purpose of the creation of the world. Why? Because that's why the world was created from the beginning. That means, the way the Alter Rebbe looks at it in Tanya and says, the way the world is going to be in the time of the coming of Mashiach is not the surprise, is not the miracle. The way it is now is the, uh, is the surprise. That means a natural way of events of the way the world's supposed to be is the way the time of the coming of Mashiach. The very fact that the world today is not that way is the question that is in the wonder. That means when the coming of Mashiach is something of the absolute, that's why if you look at the word of Nachmanides, he talks about an interesting thing. What does the word exile mean? Exile means you're not in your hometown. You're not in the place where you belong. When a person moves from one place to the next, when a person moves from one place to the other, it's not called just moving a location. He's in exile. What does it mean, exile? What's the opposite of exile? Redemption. What does the word redemption mean? Redemption means you're being returned, you're redeemed to go back to where you were initially. Or anything that you redeem. What does it mean you redeem it? You redeem it from its current status, bringing it back to its original status. What do we call about the Jewish people having, we're now in exile and we're going to have the redemption. The redemption means that we're going to bring the world to its original status. The same idea as we mentioned, I think, this a few classes ago. Rabbi Shua Balevi was once his son, had a little bit of an out-of-life experience. And when he came back, he asked his father, asked him, what did you see? So he says, I saw an absolute upside-down world. Those that are respected here are thrown to the wayside up there. Those that are thrown to the wayside here are respected up there. And what did Rabbi Shua Balevi tell him? You didn't see an upside-down world, you saw the true world. The way we see things here on this world is really it's upside down. And therefore the way we see it from our exile point of view is the way it's upside down. The true reality of the world is the coming of Mashiach. The true essence of what the world is supposed to be like is when Mashiach comes. What's happening now is only a veneer and a facade and only an upside down and a mixed up world and an exiled world. Where do we see this? It's because God created a complete and absolute beautiful world. An absolute God, a good God, only creates goodness and kindness. We, the human being, corrupted it. We, the human being, destroyed it. We, the human being, have made it and perverted it. And therefore, we are the ones that have to correct it, and we bring it to redemption. When did this happen? So if we look, something very unique. When God created the, the universe, He created a beautiful universe, complete. You didn't have to put a seedling in for a tree to come out. The trees were there, the grass were there, the fruits were there, the animals were there. Everything was there. And when he created the human being, he told Adam, eat from any tree you want. The only tree you couldn't eat from was from the tree of knowledge. That means should Adam and Eve not eaten from the tree of knowledge, death wouldn't have happened. Death came into the world only after Adam and Eve ate from the tree of knowledge. Should they be able to hold themselves in for those three hours, everything would have been fine. That means the very fact that God created the human being, that it does die, 
was only after the sin of the tree of knowledge. So who caused death? Who caused evil? Who caused hatred? Who caused the fact that there should be fights? Was the sin of the tree of knowledge, Adam and Eve. But essentially, the human being is an eternal being. Essentially, the human being is meant to live for eternity. So the fact that we're going to live for eternity when the coming of Mashiach is, it's not a wonder, it's not a miracle. That's really what we're here for. It was only that we had some type of interruption because of the sin of the tree of knowledge. Let's go back to the other thing about the animals. The animals not eating one another. The animals eating grain. The animals, the lion being like the cattle. The commentaries explain when God created each one of the creations, He created a peer of each one of them. And the very fact that God created a peer of each one of them means that if they were to eat one another, they wouldn't survive. That means essentially when the animals were created, what were they eating? On the first day of creation, what were they eating? Grass! The lion wasn't eating each other, wasn't destroying the zebra, or else there would never be a zebra. That means if God would have created within the nature that the animals should destroy each other, then we wouldn't have animals. So what essentially was our mission, even from the animal kingdom, was that they should eat grass. So is it a miracle that it's going to go back to eating grass? No, it's going to go back to the way it was initially. The same idea is when we talk about the third prophecy that's mentioned in this week's Torah reading. That fruit-bearing, that regular trees will have fruit. If you look in the creation, when God creates the universe, in the six days of creation, what does God tell, what does God tell Adam? Mikol eitz hagan From every wood of the garden you can eat. He doesn't say from every fruit of the garden you can eat. And in fact, in the Talmud, there's different opinions to which fruit did Adam eat. What some want to say, the very fact that he said, from the wood means that it is from a tree that its fruit and its bark have the same taste. And that's an esterig or a grape or whatever it may be. But he said, Mikol Eitzagon, from every wood of the tree. He doesn't say it has to be a fruit eat. That means when the world was created, every single tree was edible. It didn't have to be a fruit bearing tree. What's going to happen when Mashiach comes? Exactly the same thing. We'll go back to its original state. Which is that a fruit-bearing tree, a non-fruit-bearing tree, which was its original, will also be able to be fruit-bearing. The question is, if so, what are we doing here? We're just messing things up. If, we're the, if everything was great and everything was good, why did God create the human being to mess things up? Not only that, why did He allow the human being to mess things up? Why did He give Adam the choice? He should have created everything the way the world was. It was beautiful, it was perfect. All of a sudden he creates Adam and Eve. He gives them a choice and says, you can eat everything but don't eat that. Just tell them to stay there and tell them to just eat. Why even give the choice? Which this brings us to another Hasidic interpretation, explanation to the entire reason of why God created the universe. And God wanted that there should be freedom of choice. And God wanted that the only way that we can see freedom of choice is not the good that a person has, and the ultimate good that a, people, a person gets is not a good that is given to him, but a good that he worked on. As a person, as it says in the Talmud, a person would rather have 100 measures of his own than 200 measures given to him. There's no such greater benefit than something that we really worked hard on. I can be giving gifts of whatever it may be, but if I didn't work on it, I don't appreciate it. I don't feel for it. In the words of the Talmud, it's called embarrassed bread. 
because there was no effort, there was no work or effort put into it. This is the same idea. God put us here on this world. He gave us also the freedom of choice. He said here you have the evil inclination and the godly inclination. Everything in this world is essentially good. Every choice and every spark and every godly thing that's put in this world, ultimately it's good. But we need to know, are we going to make that choice and kindle that candle of love? Are we going to make the right choice and bring good into the world? Or are we going just allow it to be exiled and go further away from its source? All we need to do is bring it back to its original purpose of why it was here. They say a story of once the soldier who was bodyguard for the Tsar. And he was being shot at from the enemy. And an arrow was coming directly at the Tsar. And he jumps up in front of the Tsar to protect him and takes the bullet. He survives. The Tsar turns to this young soldier and he says, Ask anything you want. You saved my life. What would you like? And, the Tsar, and he tells the Tsar, he says, You know my officer? He gives me such a hard time when I want to pick the menu. Can you tell him to stop bothering me? The Tsar looks at him and says, Idiot, you could have asked to be the general and be on top of the officer. The same idea as we're here in exile. And God says, Please, pick the right thing. Don't get sidetracked. Don't ask for stupidities. Don't get fooled. Ask to be a general. We can have that time of the covenant Mashiach. We can have that blessing. We can have that ultimate gift. We just have to open up our eyes and see the choice. It's right here. It's in our hands. And once we realize that it's in our hands, then we'll bring about the coming of Mashiach.